Welcome to the Odyssey Podcasts. This is Jean Cavellos, Director of Odyssey. Odyssey is an intensive six-week workshop for writers of fantasy, science fiction, and horror whose work is approaching publication quality and for published writers who want to improve their work. Odyssey is held each summer on the campus of St. Anselm College in Manchester, New Hampshire. Adult writers from all over the world apply. Only 16 are admitted. Top authors, editors, and agents serve as guest lecturers. For more information, visit www.odysseyworkshop.org. Podcast 46 is an excerpt from Michael A. Arnzen's lecture at Odyssey 2010 on Making the Reader Squirm, Sensory Immersion. The text of this recording is copyright 2010 by Michael A. Arnzen. The sound recording is copyright 2010 by Odyssey Writing Workshops. The topic uh, that I'll be talking about is how to make your reader squirm. <laughs> and essentially we're going to talk about imagery, mood, and related to that is atmosphere. Okay. And all these ideas, imagery, mood, slash, atmosphere, I, I think they're very similar, are pertinent to what you do no matter what genre you write in. So, let's start with imagery. You probably already know imagery is another way of saying the way you appeal to the reader's senses. When you read fiction, you don't actually smell something or taste something, but it's a vicarious experience where you do. And writers need to appeal to the reader's senses so that the words that you're putting on the page get a response that feels visceral and um, through the senses. And the five senses are what? Sight, touch, sound, hearing, taste, smell. <laughs> These are all nerve endings in the human body that produce a physical response, right? We have what's called the sensorium. It's like a cockpit in your brain that perceives the world outside of your body. And your brain interprets these messages that you get, these clues about the environment you're in. Now, some senses dominate our sensorium. I would argue that in our culture, sight and sound are the dominant ones because they relate to how we perceive language. And because of the movies. When you go to the movies, you immerse yourself in this tank of sight and sound. And it's a little bit different than the reading process. And so what we're going to be talking about when we talk about imagery is how do you make those appeals to the reader's senses. Okay. Let's analyze these passages of text that I passed around and just talk about some of the topics at the bottom of the page. One is from a science fiction slash horror story. The other is from a website written by a surgeon. They are both about autopsies. <laughs> uh, for the sake of keeping us on the same page, and because I'd like to ham it up, I will read them to you. The first one is from Michael Shea's short story, The Autopsy, which if you have not read, you should read. It's awesome. 
Peeling back Willett's cover of hemorrhage-stippled skin, Dr. Winters read the corpse with an increasing dispatching, a mortuary text. He confined his inspection to the lungs and mediastinum and found their unequivocal testimony to Willett's asphyxial death. The pleure of the lungs exhibited the expected ecumoses, bruised spots in the glassy enveloping membrane. Beneath the polyhedral surface lobules of the lungs themselves were bubbled and blistered. The expected interstitial emphysema. The lungs on section were intensely and bloodily congested. The left half of the heart he found contracted and empty, while the right was overdistended and engorged with dark blood, as were the large veins of the upper mediastinum. It was a classic picture of death by suffocation, and at length the doctor, with needle and suture, closed up the text again. All right, now here's the one. Description of the routine autopsy by Dr. Ed Uthman. The empty truck looks like the hull of a ship under construction, the prominent ribs resembling the corresponding structural members of the ship. In many institutions, the sliced organs are just poured back into the open body cavity. In other places, the organs are not replaced, but just incinerated at the facility. In either case, the chest plate is placed back in the chest, and the body wall is sewn back up with baseball stitches, so that the final wound again resembles a lie. That's going to be annoying. <laughs> Which one of those two is better? Let's just start with that. The second one is just, oh, that's, you know, I can see it, but it's almost too fictional. Which is ironic because I think the fiction writer is the one who's feeling like he's got to be realistic and sound like he's a doctor. And the doctor is the one who's trying to sound like a fiction writer to make the autopsy process accessible to his readers. What a great observation. You're exactly right. Fiction writer's making it up, though he may have some scientific background. I don't know Michael Shea's biography to say this, but... Really, the character of Willett, who is a doctor, is being, um, really, that whole paragraph serves to show that he's a professional and knows scientific ways of thinking about dead bodies. Whereas in the second, a real doctor is trying to explain it to the layman. I think as writers, we make that error all the time of trying to sound, sound like a professional. When really what we are is translating things to our audiences, just like this, the second example. And I think that's often what is meant by showing rather than telling. There's a degree to which jargon tells. It's a name, you know, words like uh, mediastinum. Anything you'd have to go look up in a dictionary like that, it's Latinate, nomenclature like that, is telling. I, I assume this kind of phrase, show, don't tell, is already circulated around the room, right? This is a cliche of writer's workshops that is a truism that matters, and that's what I'm talking about. Okay, I think we uh, touched on a lot of this, but what we didn't get to talk about here in these examples was the actual words. Well, let's take this a level deeper. I just passed out a handout about the music of language. The words don't just mean, they actually are like music that is playing in the reader's mind. So there's always a secondary 
text, which is the song that the reader hears as they read along in their imagination. In a story, the words are all the reader has, and they do, whether physically or, or metaphorically, mutter to themselves as they read. They, they, they might not move their lips, they might not actually make noises, but it's there in their head. There's a song to every story. There's a song to every story. And so Michael Shea is approaching it very differently than uh, Dr. Uthman is as a writer. I think Michael Shea is much more conscious of the sound of the words and what those sounds do to a reader psychologically. How those sounds appeal to our sense of, let's say our sensorium, not just our sense of hearing, our entire sensorium. There are a lot of words that people associate with horror. In fact, I brought an example of a book called Weird Words. <laughs> it's an entire dictionary of lingo that uh, comes out of the horror genre, mostly the weird tales and the Lovecraft. I think the subtitle is A Lovecraftian Lexicon. This is one of the coolest books I ever got. I have a recent buy, so I love it. It's 600 pages long, but it's filled with examples lifted out of weird tales to illustrate the meanings of crazy words. I flag some that are relatively real, but good ones that might illustrate what we were talking about before with the way words sound. Do words naturally sound weird? <laughs> so here's one, squamous. There's a word you've probably heard before, right? What makes that a weird word? Squamous. S-Q-U, score. It's got the fricative in there. It's got the hissing S. It's got the uh. And it makes you do something with your mouth that you don't normally do, except when you, you feel sick <laughs> or when you eat and order squid, which is the weirdest creature. Squids are weird. That's why there are squids all over Lovecraft. <laughs> Could it be just because of the word? Squamous. Covered with scales. Scaly. I'll just read some of the examples. He was, as many a night before, walking amidst throngs of clawed, snouted beings through the streets of a labyrinth of inexplicably fashioned metal under a blaze of diverse solar color. And as he looked down, he saw that his body was like those of the others, rugose, partly squamous, and curiously articulated in a fashion mainly insect-like, yet not without a caricaturish resemblance to the human outline. <laughs> That's Lovecraft and E. Hoffman Price in a story called Through the Gates of the Silver Key. My horror vocabulary comes from Paula Garan, who's written for Locus and other things. She mostly does horror criticism. Um, and is also an editor now, urban fantasy now. Uh, but the ones I want to call attention to were the shutter words and the texture words on the right, because these also illustrate the exact principles we were talking about. And as you can see, there are words that we associate not just with sounds, but with meaning. Like the shutter words are obviously those lower ones with the interesting consonants mixed in there, like up, chuck, mud, blunder, bungle, clumsy, humdrum, slum, slush, you see. Of course, also in there is sludge, pus. Repugnant. Pus is one of the best words ever made. I don't know why. 
But the texture words are kind of cool, too. Um, and my favorite there, the lumpy flow. <laughs> it says what it is. You can't not feel that in your mouth. <laughs> lumpy flow. And those words are like bubble, blubber, rubber, rubble, rumble, rub, trouble. Again, what is the mood you're trying to set? You can ask yourself that question and choose words accordingly. Yeah, I mean, you have to use emotions to describe moods, don't you? And you only know them, really. You only recognize them when you're experiencing them. So all this is artificial, of course, and hard to do, actually. Because how do you put the emotions into words? You can't, really. What does it mean to be angry, really? What does that mean? Right away, I can, I'm going to guess your brain is going to, well, it goes to the way your body feels. Maybe you feel hot, flustered, your blood is pumping. You, you try to use your body to describe it, right? That doesn't really say what angry really is, because your blood can be pumping and you can feel hot, and it could be a pleasurable, happy thing. You know, it doesn't have to be angry. <laughs> right? So emotions are strange. They're words we have for things that don't quite... For feelings, which are related to the senses. So emotions are, are similar to images in that they are produced and, and attached to the sensorium the same way as any kind of objective appeal that you're making to the reader's senses. You're also trying to appeal to their emotional interpretation of those sensory cues that you give them. So it's very complicated, I think, mood. How do storytellers in fantasy, science fiction, and horror try to conjure these emotional perspectives? Words? Word choice. The words create the mood. Images? I'm just going to say all rhythm. Whether it's in a sentence, whether it's in one word, whether it's in the entire story. How else do writers conjure up these moods? Setting? Setting sets up the atmosphere, doesn't it? Setting creates the mood. Another word of caution is that when you're setting up mood, you want to avoid, in word choice, naming the emotion, I think. He was mad. If you can avoid saying that, your story will be much better. Because you'll have to show it, inherently. Why? Because of what we talked about before. Emotions are words that don't, we can't really articulate what they mean when we say things like angry. Instead, you would say, his face flushed red. He pumped his fist. I hate you, he whispered. Anger. Without using the word mad, angry, or anything. It's just pure description. Why would telling break the mood? Thank you, I would what? Say that again. It takes you out of the Who's the it you? Takes the reader out of the picture. Takes the reader out of the picture. The reader's not participating actively in the construction of the drama. Exacto mundo. Yeah. But it also means that the, the writer is present. It's like there's, you're in a movie theater watching a movie and suddenly someone sitting behind you leans forward and says, He's angry right there. Look. The, the person sitting behind you whispering over your shoulder, is telling you how to read the drama. It's pre-interpretive when the writer does it. It's 
pre-interpretive. You're doing the interpretation for the audience. Readers like to play along and, and read between the lines and feel like they understand what flushed-faced, pumping fists and the whispered, I hate you, really signify. That's why we read, to deduce these things. That's part of the pleasure of the game of reading fiction. Yeah. So setting up the mood without interfering by naming emotions or relying too much on archetypes can really uh, jazz up your work and, and, and really get a, a strong response from your reader who might not be able to articulate why they liked it or why they had a visceral response to it, but, but they, they will. The text of this recording is copyright 2010 by Michael A. Arnzen. The sound recording is copyright 2010 by Odyssey Writing Workshops.